The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Pontus Noren to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Pontus pioneered the cloud-native approach as the CEO, founding CEO at CloudReach. At the scale-up he started in 2009, a mere four months after Lehman Brothers collapsed. Uh, some interesting analogies there with the situation we're facing in 2020 with the uh, pandemic. And he led CloudReach as the CEO to an exit when Blackstone acquired the business in 2017. By the time Blackstone acquired the business, CloudReach was a leader in the Gartner Magic Quadrant, ranked top 25 in the Sunday Times, um, Hiscock Tech 100, and had been named by the FT as one of Europe's fastest growing companies. Pontus is now the chair of TIC, an open source API platform startup He's also an advisor to several other startups and scale-ups. So, uh, Pontus, it's a great pleasure to have you join me for uh, this week's episode. Gary, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you on this uh, week's podcast, and, uh, and thank you for the invitation. You're most welcome. So here we are, nearly five months into the COVID-19 pandemic, and about three months into the lockdowns in Europe and North America. So your entrepreneurial journey starting a business just four months after the global financial crisis kicked in seems pretty damn relevant. You're involved with a number of startups and scale-ups. What advice have you been giving them to help them navigate their way through the crisis? Yeah, I think by and large, the definition of startups is that you are coming up with something different and new and maybe innovative to, uh, to contribute to an industry etc. And that essentially requires that industry to change, change their approach uh, and do things in a different way. And in a lot of cases, you know, when things are kind of stable and going up, up, up that we saw maybe six to seven months ago, there's less an incentive for companies to to make changes and, and take risks. And I think today, uh, certainly looking at the behavior of a lot of large corporations, you know, also those maybe laying off people, et cetera, they have to look at everything afresh and maybe take a completely different approach to the business that they still have and it's the same business. And therefore, as a startup, there's huge opportunity right now to go after over the next 12 to 24, 36 months. There's all these big corporations that you might want to target are having to force or being forced to rethink how they do things today versus maybe six months or 12 months ago. And I think that's the big opportunity right now. In a sense, you're saying the companies you're involved with are actually pretty well poised to, if this phrase is acceptable, to take advantage of some of the trends that are being driven by the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think we were, we were coming to the end of a very long boom cycle in any case. So something that's going to trigger a downturn and a reset in the market. And we're seeing the typical signs of a market reset with stock markets, even though they're now back at, at a reasonable high level, still have taken a hit. Commercial real estate will take a hit. You know, everything that you associate with a classic recession, however long it's going to be. And these kind of 
market environments forces people to rethink their approach to a variety of things that they do in their established business, both to survive, but also to thrive in the, in the next uh, uptake. And therefore, yes, there's a moment to take advantage of people's openness, let's say, to change. If, you have a, if you're a company with a different and a new and maybe innovative approach to, to solving a problem. Quite a lot of VCs I speak to are telling their portfolio companies to be careful, to maximize the runway, etc. When you and I last spoke, you mentioned this was actually a great opportunity to go out on the offensive. Just walk me through that in terms of the advice you're giving your portfolio about grabbing the opportunity rather than being excessively cautious. Yeah, I think you have to strike a balance, right? Clearly, you know, it's not an ideal fundraising environment right now. So if you can avoid it, you don't want to run out of cash in the next six months. And if you had planned your business based on a certain revenue uptick, et cetera, and therefore you're going to spend money in that way. And even though things are slowing down, you know, you might have to recut your cloth a little bit in terms of the cash to make sure you have that runway. But at the same time, I think it's dangerous to become too cautious and not seize this opportunity. There will be other companies in your industry that are scaling back even more and being even more cautious, maybe laying off people, maybe shrinking. And it's the opportunity right now that you can take by aggressively targeting customers, etc., and maybe making those hires that you make sure that you build for the future, clearly being prudent in how you do it. But I, I fear that some people will regress too much and be too, too, too cautious. And I think that's a, that's a real danger at, the, at this point. I ask people to be sensible and aggressive at the same time. And I, th- I think this is a great myth of entrepreneurship that a lot of people think of entrepreneurs as people who take reckless risk and go out and just you know splash cash, et cetera. Of course, there are people who do that, but I don't think that's the appropriate definition. You know, in, my, in my mind, an entrepreneur is defined by someone who's absolutely prepared to take risk and to push things to the, to the edge, but doing it in a calculated way and always have an eye on the downside and understanding the downside, but being willing to play to the upside in a relatively aggressive way, but not in a reckless way. Many leaders struggle with focus and prioritization. One of your favorite phrases is, what you don't do is just as important as what you do do. That's a great mantra to have, but I'm guessing that you learned that from really bitter experience. So how and when did you stumble across this nugget of wisdom that's really so important for all tech leaders? Yeah, I'm not sure if it was a particular moment, but I guess you know, reflecting and looking back at a lot of the things that we were trying to undertake, I certainly probably wish in hindsight we wouldn't have done them. I think a great example, and this is no reflection of the of the team and the effort that the people put in, but you know, when we were not a too big a business and we were going out there helping people to use and migrate to Google apps or G Suite as now nowadays called and doing a lot of work around Amazon Web Services. We also thought because most of our clients were using salesforce.com and therefore we're going to set up a unit to also do salesforce.com. And, you know, we were somewhat successful for a period of time, but we just didn't have the resources and the, the money, quite frankly, to go all the way to build that because it was a very competitive ecosystem. The people we put in there, they, they did do the utmost, but in hindsight, you know, we, we shouldn't have done that. And 
that's on a more grander scale. It has a big kind of strategic decision to align yourself with the new ecosystem as we did. But I think there are lots of smaller ones as well where decisions were made to to try and attempt things that we, we probably should have left alone. And it, it causes a distraction because I think, and I see that when I talk to entrepreneurs today, there's just so many things, you know, it's a bit like a, a builder, a carpenter, whatever, could always see all the flaws and what they built. And this is exactly the same thing. You see, you can see the beauty, but you also see all the holes and you can't go off and fill all those holes immediately. You can't fill in even a fraction of it, right? So you need to pick out the ones that you can do and do really well and you think are going to make an outsized difference to whatever you're trying to create. And this is a very, very difficult thing because it's a nerve, you're nervous that you're picking the wrong stuff to focus on. So therefore, you rather try to do as many of them as possible, but quite often end up doing it in a half-hearted or half-invested way. So maybe the impact of what you hope to achieve is, is not quite there, which is why, therefore, choosing what not to do and accept, accepting those flaws is very important and harder in many cases than choosing what to do. Now, when we last spoke, you told me, I've often recruited people too fast, but I've never fired someone too fast. So what are the hiring and firing challenges you've faced and what are some of your key learnings? It's interesting, right? I absolutely stand by that statement and we can go into maybe the firing side in, in a bit more detail but also on the hiring side one of the things that that we discovered over time was that and i think a lot of large corporations make this very mistake when someone wants to leave a role and maybe move within the business they get put in charge of hiring the replacement because logically you think that's the person who should have most insight into what we need for that role the challenge is that most people, once they have had a sniff of the new role, they want to get out of their existing role as quickly as they possibly can. <laughs> and quite often they have, there's no downside to them in their new role in terms of who they hire into their existing role. Uh, and that causes a very weird conflict of interest, which is why we introduce a concept of the person with the most to gain from this hire has the least say in who to hire. And that also goes inside teams, by the way. It's not just when you're replacing yourself, but if you're running a team of I don't know, five people, you need to hire two more people for some specific tasks, some of which might be taking off your plate, and you feel like under serious pressure to fill those two roles, there's a real risk that you make a bad judgment in terms of the person you're bringing on board because you really want to just solve the problem as of doing it with the right people. And you know, what I often said to say to people as well, if you think about it, it takes anything from two to four months to find an individual. A lot of people need to be interviewed for it and CVs reviewed. There's a lot of internal effort just to get down to a short list of maybe five people, then further interviews with those five people, further time and effort being spent. You then end up hiring a person. That person is then invested in for three to six months before you realize actually he or she are not fit for the role. That's a good eight to 12 months of wasted, a lot of wasted internal time. So it's a hidden cost to businesses and huge amount of loss of time when you get this wrong, which is why, you know, a lot of people rush into hires thinking, ah, we'll just go out and find another one, not thinking about the wider consequences, which can be quite far reaching in my, in my view, especially the year lost in a fast growing startup is uh, for a senior hire is devastating. So specifically with, with the companies that you're currently involved in, how are you getting them to make sure that the right people are involved in the hiring processes and that they hire in an appropriate 
and timely fashion. I guess there are two aspects to that. One is kind of the organizational design. And one of the things I think we did pretty well a lot of the time was to try and think 6, 12, 18 months ahead. And that can be an organizational plan, project what we think we're going to be in 12 months' time, how you plan it financially, et cetera. So lots of ways of looking at it, how you think the market is going to move, do we think we have to move our product or service in a certain direction, et cetera. And trying to kind of predict and preempt just because it takes time to bring certain hires on board. So that's kind of one thing to really not caught, be caught on the back foot by, you know, only where you need the individual to realize that, man, we need to go out and hire for this person. And then you are, again, maybe rushing it and getting the wrong person. That's one thing. And, and the other element for me, I mean, I'm, I'm not an exec in any of these businesses. I'm not there to make decisions. <laughs> it would be wrong for me to make decisions, either as an NED or a chairman, vice chairman, but clearly to talk about my practical hands-on experiences down to the details of, of certain processes and just sharing what I saw. And clearly, each business is slightly different, but uh, it's then up to these executives to, I guess, take some of those thoughts and experiences on board and adapt them to their current situation. But you know, I'm not there to make the decision for them. I'm there to advise and, and coach and mentor and be a sounding board. That's really what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do. And what about the tendency to hang on to people too long, people that just aren't working out? Have you introduced any processes to enable you to move people on at the right time? Again, given I'm, I'm not really running these businesses, uh, it's, it's more of an advice and guidance. And specifically when it comes to more senior individuals, both in the hiring phase and in the firing phase, you see, I think a mistake a lot of people make is that they mistake the ability to like people and how likable they are to how appreciated people are in their role. So when it comes to parting ways with an individual, and you look at the team, and they might end up, well, pre-COVID, in a pub after work and chatting, and they all seem to get along really well. And you think, man, if we, if we part way with this individual, whether he or she is a leader and an individual contributor, it's really going to upset the team because they really like this person. Yeah? But actually, when you dig into it a bit more, you realize that, that they like the person because they're a nice person and they're sociable. But actually, day to day, they really dislike this person because this person is not pulling their weight. It doesn't have the right skill sets. doesn't have the right attitude. It doesn't have whatever it might be. Yeah. So that what you are seeing, the team is seeing, and the team is actually looking to you for leadership to say, look, you need to part ways with this individual because this is not working out. And the number of times when, when I have and we did part ways with people, being nervous about the team reaction, I had people coming up to me and say, amazing that you guys actually dare to do these things because it's a right for the company, it's a right for the team, and it's probably the right thing for the individual. Most, in pretty much all cases, they go on and find something else somewhere else that suits them better. And that's the other thing about the firing side. I think there's a lot of stigma attached to firing someone by implying that's, that's why this person is bad or incompetent. That's a lot of, in a lot of cases, not the case, but it's just the wrong person for that role. And that's very different, right? Or the culture of the business and how we do things, right? And therefore, you know, I've had a lot of good feedback and praise for actually moving people on. And, and yeah, but I never felt that looking back, as, as you said earlier, is that I've never fired anyone too soon. We never parted away with someone too soon, but often too late. And this is why you need to dare, because even if you think this person is very liked within the organization, 
it is often on a personal level as opposed to a contributor level. And you need to you need to look at it from both those two angles. Let's talk for a few moments about scaling up. What are the most important decisions that tech entrepreneurs need to make during the scale-up phase of their business adventure? And how does that differ from the startup phase? I think for me, what defines the startup phase is to, to really build and understand the value proposition you take into market. And does it have a market? That's for me, is the startup phase. Is what we do something of interest to a, a wide enough group of companies or consumers, if you're a B2C business, that there's something in this? And that's kind of what seed funding and, and maybe even Series A is often about, is to find that product market fit and build some kind of a core team around it, potentially. But specifically, the anchor clients, a set of clients that can validate what you're doing in the market. Now, once that's done, and you're often on a Series B race, let's say, and you go out and you, you put 5, 10, 20 million into a business, the scale-up is, by the clues in the word, is just kind of scale it up. And, and for me, that's often to do with disassociating the business from the individual. And this is, I think you often find that there are businesses that can get to three, four, five, maybe 10 million in scale, but not beyond because the founders are still out there doing most of the work, most of the selling, most of the evangelizing, and that's their passion, and they're often very good at it to get to that stage. But actually, it's about handing it over to other people that can do it and make that repeatable. So, you know, how do you get a business to go from 10 to 100 million is all about building a business. And I think this is extremely, this, this is hard, and this is, this is uh, tricky because it's no longer about necessarily about you as the enthusiastic founder trekking up and down the country to convince people to buy your product, where you actually, what you did was you validated that product in the, in the first phase. And now it's about thinking, how do we actually build something around what we have created in, in phase one and make that scalable? Do you think all CEOs, when they're pitching to VCs, should actually have a plan to replace themselves, actually bake it in? to the business plan and the roadmap after we've achieved certain milestones, my aim is to replace myself with someone who can scale the business to the next level? It's a great question and it's a difficult question to answer. I think this comes back to something we've touched on in the, in the, in the past, Gary, around what kind of person suits what phase of a business. And absolutely, you need to make a business independent of you as a founder, that's absolutely core to, to, the, to the scale-up phase and having particularly the, the sales and go-to-market processes where you are the cherry on the cake and not the driver of that process. Equally, succession planning, if you wish, is also very important because that's another proof point that a business is a standalone business. But then how you go about finding that replacement, I think it's, it's another aspect that it's often maybe misunderstood or overlooked. Should we, in the pitching phase, already show that you... I think that's a tricky one because it could be misinterpreted by some, some VCs that you want to leave the business and get out of it and go and do something else. So I think you need to be very careful about how you pitch that. But, should, but it's more about the business being in the, operating independent of you by and large, and you are the CEO that leads the charge, sets the vision, inspires people, make sure you communicate 
uh, etc. You still have a lot of value to add for quite some time as a CEO founder, because you know the, the original idea sits with you, and, and you saw a lot of the early pains of getting the business to that point. I think that VCs and founding CEOs need to be a bit more realistic. I mean, not everyone can do what Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos have done and found a tiny little startup and and remain at the helm throughout. Most companies, once they scale beyond, say, 10 million in revenue or maybe a little bit more than that, are already scaling beyond the capacity of the original founder to stay in charge and in control. So maybe a more explicit plan along the lines of once we hit a certain milestone, I will either replace myself with a professional CEO and I'll become chairman, or I'll bring in you know, a very strong COO to support me. That makes complete sense. I guess what, my, what I reacted to was a bit more around the, the, the pitching phase, right? It depends on how good a relationship you have with that the investors you are talking to, so it could be construed as someone trying to get out of the hot seat uh, before they're done. And I guess that's kind of where I'm a bit wary about doing it at that stage. But I think as an investor has come in, and during that phase, let's say, having that conversation openly, I think is absolutely vital and something that, that should be on the table. Because let's also be realistic over a five or ten, in, and you know, I'm I'm certainly in that camp. After ten years of relentlessly hard work, and, and in our case, we bootstrapped it, so there's other stresses and pressures on on that as well. It comes to a point when you run out of steam a little bit. Otherwise, you're superhuman, I think. And and we certainly have examples like Zuckerberg, maybe and Bezos, but they are very very few and far between, I think. And and you know. A decade, a decade at, in the hot seat is, is a pretty long time. So, so for that reason alone, I think it's it makes total sense to to look at it that way. And, and yeah, you have lots of different structures. You can become executive chairman, so you're still involved. You make some decisions. You become chairman. You stay as CEO. You bring a COO in. You know, there are a variety of alternatives here. But to take the pressure of that founding CEO, I think it's it's um, it's very sensible. As you pointed out, staying fresh is important. So do you plan to continue with your portfolio of roles or are you beginning to feel the pull towards launching another venture of your own, doing something very fresh? Yeah, this is a, <laughs> a question some people well, people ask me and people are, and I ask myself as well <laughs> from time to time. I think it's a combination of, you know, is there, is there an idea I will come across that I really like, et cetera, as well, might, might, might trigger it. I think. For the time being, I have a, a few different plans and a few irons in the fire, talking to a few people as well, where I think I can scale myself a bit by helping a variety of businesses, by sharing my experience, as opposed to channel it into a single business venture of my own. But um, you know, t- time will tell. I might, I might certainly go back and, and take the hot seat again. It is you know, definitely something I miss. I mean, there's, um, you, you cannot compare being sitting as a bit of a spectator on the sideline offering good advice to being at the co-face and and um and grinding away day to day it's there's something extremely uh, enjoyable about that and, and i certainly miss it you know on a regular basis thank you so much for joining me on today's episode pontus it's been really fascinating hearing about your story from startup to scale up to uh, exit to major exit indeed so i'm sure you'll have inspired 
many tech entrepreneurs grappling with the pandemic, trying to be bold during the lockdown. Yeah, no, Gary, thank you very much again for for the invitation. And uh, uh, I very much enjoyed partaking in your podcast. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.